Okay. We have talked about the nature of the illness. And we have talked about the physical allergy. And, the, and we've talked about the mental twist. And the mental twist is, is triggered, the mental twist is activated by the buildup of human emotion. And when the human emotions get too much, the mind goes to its time-tested way of dealing with it, and it says, eat some food. And the intelligent part of my brain says, no way I'm eating that food. Oh, no way I'm doing that. And the emotional part of the brain says, yes, you are. And the intelligent part of the brain says, no, you're not. And every time there is a conflict between the emotional and the intelligent, the emotional will win every time. So food is never the problem. Not to a compulsive overeater, it's not. To the compulsive overeater, food is the answer to the problem. And the problem is, again, as we've stated, the buildup of emotions. I've had a request from this side to sit over here so they don't have to turn their head. Oh, they requested me over to move over. So I'll do that for the second part. Okay, as best I can. I don't know that this will let me, but we'll try we're going to talk this morning about a man who had the twist of the mind and the allergy of the body. And we're going to talk about him not because of how wonderful he was or how whatever he was. We're going to talk about him. And one of the things that I want to do as best I can is to make his story, thank you, more your story and my story. But your story is what's important here. We're going to talk about Bill Wilson. And we're going to see the way Bill thinks. And we're going to see the way Bill drinks. And we're going to see him. And we're going to be able to, through identification, uh, identify with him. And we're going to see in the second half of Bill's story how a spiritual experience awakened within him through the course of very unlikely, unbelievable events in life that were driven by God and how he never found it necessary to drink ever again throughout his life. Let's go to page one. Bill's story. Now, Bill Wilson was born in November of 1896 in East Dorset, Vermont. And Bill was the oldest child of two. He has a younger, uh, younger um, sister, and her name was Dorothy. And Dorothy is going to play into this equation as well. And Bill's mother and father, in 1906, divorced. And the reason that they divorced was because Bill's father was an alcoholic. Fancy that. Bill's grandfather was also an alcoholic who went on a walk one day on Mount Elias in, in Vermont and he had a spiritual conversion, a spiritual experience on the mountain and never found it necessary to drink again. And Bill was the child of a divorce 
And in 1906, unlike today, well, there is some, but sometimes I can't believe I'm a divorced man. It wasn't something I wanted, something I chose. It was something that was thrust upon me. But I still kind of feel that stigma because in my life, divorce did have that sort of stigma to it. And... Um, In 1906, divorce was quite scandalous, and Bill always found that he was less than in his own mind. Bill spent a lot of his time and a lot of effort trying to prove that he was like other people. He was very determined. He was very hardworking. He read in a book one time that only an aborigine could could fashion a boomerang which would actually come back to you once thrown. And so he worked tirelessly to fashion a boomerang that did come back. And when it did, it almost took his grandfather's head off. But he did fashion a boomerang that did come back. Bill and Dorothy, after 1906, when their parents split up, were raised by their maternal grandparents, the Griffiths. And the Griffiths lived, also lived in East Dorset, Vermont. And Bill and Dorothy were raised there. And when Bill discovered in his grandpa's attic a violin, he practiced tirelessly at the violin and actually became co-first chair of his school's orchestra. And one of the other things he discovered up there was a baseball glove, a baseball mitt. And he worked and worked and worked and became the shortstop, the starting shortstop of his school's baseball team. Bill was tall, gangly, and Bill suffered from an inferiority complex. Very much suffered from an inferiority complex. And Bill worked, as I said, very hard at proving to himself and others... What does, he felt like he was less than others. He felt like he was less than other people. And um, Bill also was a depressant. Bill suffered from depression throughout his life. When Bill was 17 years old, he was in love with a girl named Bertha Bamford. And Bertha Bamford was the love of Bill's life. And Bertha went to New York City to have a, what was then described as a simple routine operation, and she died on the operating table. And Bill fell in at age 17 to the first of his many and very deep depressions. And Bill suffered from depression his entire life. Bill Wilson is um, going to go into the Army now in World War I, and let's pick up the story on page one, and we're going to read the st- Bill, Bill's story, page one. War fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew young officers from Plattsburgh. Plattsburgh is in upstate New York. We're assigned, and we were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes, making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. I was part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. I forgot the strong warnings and prejudices of my people <clears throat> concerning drink. Excuse me. In time, we sailed for over there. That's World War I. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. We landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by a dog roll on an old tombstone. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold small beer. A good soldier is ne'er forgot. 
whether he dieth by musket or by pot. Now, the pot that he's talking about there, the pot that they're talking, has nothing to do with marijuana. <laughs> the pot that they're talking about there is the way they drank beer in England in those days was in pots. There was pint pots and there was quart pots. And they drank standing up. And there was a, there was a saloon and they drank standing up. And they had a bar to lean against, much like this, and that's the way they drink. And hence the name, that's the way bar came into the language. And if you look at a bar stool today as an homage to those days, a bar stool is always higher level-wise than a kitchen chair, a dining room chair, or a living room chair. It's always higher as an homage to the days when drinking was always done standing up. And they would have their beer in pint pots and quart pots. And when the barkeeper would sense that the boys in the back were getting just a little too rowdy, in England they would say, watch your pints and quarts back there or I'm going to cut you off. Watch your pints and quarts. And when that expression came to the colonies in the early 1700s, that expression became, watch your P's and Q's, and that's how that came into our language today. But when, we, when Bill sees this, and see, we give you everything. We give you etymology. We give you a little Yiddish. We give you a little lesson. We give you a little Chicago geography. We give you a lot of stuff here. And you see, and how much was it to register? 40 bucks or something? See, you get a lot. You get a lot for your money when you register over here. Okay, okay. so Bill sees this doggerel on an old tombstone. A doggerel is just a funny writing, comical writing. And this has a great impression upon Bill. Let's see where we go from there. Ominous warning, which I failed to heed. 22, and a veteran of foreign wars, I went to home, I, I, and a veteran of foreign wars, I can't read today. I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader, for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation, my talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with the utmost assurance. I took a night law course and obtained employment as investigator for a surety company. The drive for success was on. I'd proved to the world I was important. My work took me about Wall Street, and little by little I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some became very rich. Why not I? I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or write. Now... What is happening in Bill's life is the same thing that happened in my life. He was too drunk to think or write. His alcoholism is starting to dictate to him where he can go and where he can't go. What he can be and what he cannot be. What dreams he can dream and what dreams he cannot dream. And in my life, everything I reached out for, my hand was slapped away by food. I wanted to date. I wanted to look good. I wanted to be good. I wanted to have a career. I wanted to do different things with my life. But my compulsive overeating shut every door in my face. And it shut it in the most rude, obnoxious way possible. And I kept trying and trying and trying. And I could not get anywhere. I absolutely had the dreams that all kids have. I had aspirations and ambitions just like anyone else. And everything I wanted to do went up in smoke. It absolutely went up in old candy wrappers, pizza boxes, and bakery boxes as well. 
it says here, though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wife. We had long talks when I would still her forebodings by telling her that men of genius conceive their best projects when drunk, that the most majestic constructions of philosophic thought were so derived. What is the first victim of addiction? It's the truth. It's the truth. The first victim of any addiction is honesty. It goes out the window. There is no faster victim of this illness than honesty, the truth. You start lying to yourself and you start lying to others. Now, there's four things that all alcoholics do. Compulsive overeaters do. Gamblers do. Drug addicts do. They lie. They assign blame. They keep score in their relationships and they fight battles that just don't exist. And if you listen to the language of compulsive overeaters, they're lying. When, how do you know when a compulsive overeater is lying? When his lips are moving. <laughs> when his lips are moving. We lie to ourselves and we lie to other people. We also have a situation where we keep score. If you hadn't have done that to me, I wouldn't be the way I am. And I did this for you and you didn't do that for me. We assign blame. I'm this way because of my mother. I'm this way because of my father. No, you're not. You hear people do that when they come into their first meeting. Well, I'm here because we're Japanese. We're Irish. We're German. We're Spanish. We're Jewish. We're Greek. We're Russian. And we use food for, for love. You know a culture that doesn't get around the table for meals and celebrate with food? I don't know of any culture that does, but 9 out of 10 of us are not compulsively overeating and 1 out of 10 of us are. Hmm, you think that might be because this is an illness and has nothing to do with your nationality? Hmm, I think so. <laughs> Sorry. They keep score, they lie, they assign blame, and they fight battles that just don't exist. And we get out there every day and don the armor and get up on the steed and we're out there dun, 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 and there's no one else on the battlefield. There's no one else. And we're fighting wars against the Democrats and the Republicans and we're fighting wars against the immigrants and we're fighting wars against my mother-in-law and my father-in-law. They're not going to treat... Oh my God, it's the most exhausting way to live there is. It's exhausting. Good Lord. It's a miracle sometimes we can function at all. By the time I had completed the course, page two, I knew the law was not for me. The inviting maelstrom of Wall Street had me in its grip. Business and financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that one day would turn in its flight like a boomerang and all but cut me to ribbons. Living modestly, my wife and I saved $1,000. Now, I want to stop and talk to you about this $1,000 because you're living in 2015 and you probably have credit cards or debit cards on you right now that total more than $1,000. But what you have to understand is this is the 1920s. $1,000 is a lot of money. And I point that out not to give you a history lesson, but to give you a lesson in who Bill Wilson is, that he was successful, that he was not laying in the gutter with a trench coat drinking and getting drunk. He was successful. If you go to any website and you look up prices in Chicago in the 1920s, you could get a freestanding house in Chicago at that time for anywhere between 12 to about $1,500, $1,800 that you'd want to live in. 
in Chicago during the 1920s, you could get a brand new Ford for $495. You could get a brand new Dodge Brothers car for about $495. You could get a, you could get a lot of different brand new cars for about 500 bucks, and he saved $1,000. So let's see where he goes from there because he's also going to know something that a lot of people didn't know, and it parallels what we just went through in our world. You see, in the 1920s, if I took one of these chairs and I put a chimp in the chair and I said to the chimp, chimp, throw a dart at the board, and if the chimp hit a stock and I invested in that stock and about a 10% margin, I would probably make money because things were going up and up and up and up. And Bill Wilson says, wait a minute here. Whoa, wait a minute here. What goes up must come down. And he says to some of the people on Wall Street, see, he wasn't really a stockbroker. That's a misnomenclature. What he was was he was a New York City stock speculator who made his living selling his ideas to other people. And he said to some of the guys there, wait a minute, this is going to come down. We need information on these companies. We need to know what we're investing in. And they said, oh, Wilson, go back to your desk. Don't worry about that. Who cares? But Bill was cunning, baffling, and powerful too. And when he had a good idea that he knew was a good idea, he followed through on it. Let's see where he goes from there. Can I start to identify with Bill? You bet I can. I went into certain securities, then cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagined that they would someday have a great rise. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and management, but my wife and I decided to go anyway. I had developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. And you can see online or in the pictures in AA Comes of Age, you can see Bill and Lois in the motorcycle with her in the sidecar and it's stuffed with blankets and the tents and everything else. And these are pictures you can see. And if you listen to some of his old talks online, he talks about this quite a bit too. It was an exciting part in their life. They were traveling around. And what did Bill know? How he could get this information from the guys that were working at General Electric and Westinghouse and all these other places? He waited for them where? He waited for them in the bar when he knew their tongues would be wagging if he could just get them drunk. He knew that they would tell him information that he wanted to know about what was going on in their research and development so he would have some inside information. Bill is many things, but stupid idiot is not on the list. He was a very smart man. He was a very intelligent man. He knew people. He knew things. He was not a stupid man at all. He is my hero, too. Okay, we gave up our positions and off we roared on a motorcycle. <clears throat> the sidecar stuff with tent blankets, a change of clothes, and three huge volumes of a financial reference service. Our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. Perhaps they were right. I had had some success at speculation, so we had a little money. We once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital. That was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day. We covered the whole eastern United States in a year. At the end of it, my reports to Wall Street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense
expense account. The exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year. Now he's making several thousand dollars for the year. Another exercise you may want to do one day is look up online salaries early 1920s. If you were a doctor like Silkworth who went to work at the Towns Hospital, when Charlie Towns hired Bill, uh, uh, Williams, uh, Duncan Silkworth, he hired him for $35 a week. If you were a surgeon, a top surgeon, you might have made $50 a week. Well, that translates out to about $2,500 a year, if my math is correct. But here's Bill Wilson making several thousand dollars for the year. They're living on Park Avenue. They're doing well. Everything is going well in Bill's life. Let's see where he goes from there. For the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. I had arrived. Here's the kid from East Dorset, Vermont. Never had a pot or a window to throw it out of. Here's the kid from East Dorset, Vermont. He doesn't feel quite like he fits in, and he is doing well. Let's see where he goes. My judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. There was loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Everyone spent in thousands and shattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair weather friends. So here's Bill Wilson, and he is drinking, but people are following what he is doing to the tune of paper millions. Now, I don't know what you do for a living, but let's just say that what you do for a living is so well done by you that you become the standard by which people perform. And people are looking at you, and whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a doctor, or you're a housewife, or you're a bus driver, whatever that may be, or maybe you work for the county or the city or municipal government, whatever it is you do, it becomes, but wait a minute, you're not doing it right. That isn't the way Roanne does it. That isn't the way Roanne sets those things up. And what you do becomes the standard by which other people perform or, la or lack thereof. So could you just imagine what that does for his ego? Because Bill had an ego. And Bill was very human. He says he made a host of fair weather friends. Now keep that in mind, that fair weather friends, because we're going to come back to that. Let's see where he goes. My drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night. The remonstrances of my friends means the arguing of my friends, the fighting of my friends terminated in a row. A row is a fight. A row is an argument as well. And I became a lone wolf. So there he is. Here he is from East Dorset, Vermont. Here's Bill Wilson. And people are getting on him about drinking when everything he ever dreamed of having was in his hands. The wealth was there. The friends were there. The admiration was there. Everything you could dream of was within his grasp. Everything he came to New York to try to accomplish was behind him. And now all he could do was build and build and build. But his drinking is assuming more serious proportions. And he gives up the friends and says, F you, get out of my life. And he becomes what? A lone wolf. And how many times... 
Did I want to be included? How many times did I want to be the life of the party? How many times did I just want to be included in things and I chose food over people and while I chose the food over the people, I ate too much food because of the pain of choosing food over people. So the more I chose food over people, the more I ate. And the more I ate, the more ashamed of myself I got. The more ashamed of myself I got, the more I ate because of the painful buildup of human emotions. And when those emotions would build up, they would trigger the mental twist. The twist would send me into the food in search of the relief from that effect. I would eat the food and I would trigger the allergy, pass through the well-known stages of a spree. Emerging, emerging remorseful, thanks Virgil, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to eat that way again. And I would repeat that cycle over and 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 over again, my mind wanting something and my emotional self wanting the food to put out the fire. Can I relate to Bill Wilson now? You bet I can. I absolutely relate to Bill Wilson now. Let's see where he goes from there. There were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. There had been no real infidelity for loyalty to my wife, helped at times by extreme drunkenness, kept me out of those scrapes. I'm not going to go into a, a whole lot of things here. Let's just say that Bill was very human. Bill Wilson was a human being. And as a human being, he was fallible. And this is something that we're not going to get into, but you can sort of draw your own conclusions. In 1929, I contracted golf fever. We went at once to the country, my wife to applaud while I started out to overtake Walter Hagen. Walter Hagen was the big golfer at the time. Think Nicholas or Tiger or one of those guys. I, the liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be, to be jittery in the morning. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night. It was fun to caroam around the exclusive course which had inspired such awe in me as a lad. I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do. The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with amused skepticism. Abruptly, in October 1929... Hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of infernal, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was 8 o'clock, five hours after the, after the market closed. The ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of tape which bore the inscription XYZ32. It had been 52 that morning. I was finished and so were many friends. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. Make note of how he's looking at these guys that are jumping. Why were these guys jumping off the building? Because their God was dead. Money was their God. The stock market, the board, was their God. And when that God died on October the 29th, 1929, Black Tuesday, their God was dead. What did he do? Without knowing it intelligently, he knew this emotionally, he went back to the bar because the bar had liquor and the liquor would give him the effect and the effect killed the pain of the emotional buildup very nicely and it gave him that courage to fight another day. Let's see where Bill Wilson goes. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. My friends had dropped several million since 10 o'clock. So what? 
Tomorrow was another day as I drank the old fierce determination to win came back. And he's feeling that effect, isn't he? You give me enough Oreos. You give me enough ice cream. You give me enough Kit Kat bars. And I am feeling no pain. I might not have much of a bank account, but it is going to just be healthy as anything tomorrow because tomorrow I'm going to do this, this, and this, and everything's going to be different. And tomorrow I'm going to go on my diet. And tomorrow Jennifer Aniston's going to kiss me. And tomorrow everything's going to be just fantastic. And that's the way we think. And as we're eating the cookies, as we're eating the ice cream, we convince ourselves that we better eat all of it now because tomorrow I'm going back on my diet. And I see a lot of heads going like this. Can I relate to Bill Wilson now? You bet I can. Let's remember, <laughs> he's making fun of the people that are killing themselves, and he's just getting drunk, and that's going to solve his problem. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. That would be Bill Wilson's friend, Dick Johnson. He had plenty of money left and thought I had better go to Canada. By the following spring, we were living in our, in our accustomed style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No St. Helena for me. St. Helena is where he was banished to, and Elbow was where he got off and reconquered France, reconquered Europe. But drinking caught up with me, uh, not Bill Wilson, Napoleon. Okay, but drinking caught up with me again, and my generous friend had to let me go. This time, we stayed broke. Now, Bill is sinking into the abyss of his alcoholism. And in the first eight pages of Bill's story, we see the progression of his illness. And in the second eight pages of his story, we are going to see how a recovery was affected therefrom by the Oxford Group movement and the spiritual experience that he's going to have. And we're going to talk about that. But for right now, here's where we are. But Bill's story is clearly defined or clearly um, delineated into two parts. The first eight pages of Bill's Abyss and his, his, his the progression of his alcoholism and the second eight pages about his recovery therefrom. We went to live with my wife's parents. Now, I have to stop here for just a second. I want to frame for you the world that Bill is living in. See, in 2015, the world we live in now, people going back to live with their parents is one thing. In those days, it was horrible. I'm going to teach you a Yiddish expression. It was a shanda for the neighbors. <clears throat> Ashanda means a shame because people were brought up, people were told, you have to provide for your family. We're told this as little boys. I remember the friends, the, my, the friends of my, the fathers of my friends, not the friends of my fathers, the fathers of my friends would tell us, girls may fall in love with you, but you better make sure they have clothes on their back. You better make sure she has a roof over her head. You better make sure she has nice things. You better make sure that there's food on the table. They may love you, but they're not going to starve to death for you, and they're not going to live in green, bright, Park under a bench for you. Greenbrier is a park on Peterson in California, in Chicago. But they're not going to starve to death for you. And this is the world that he's living in. Now, I also need to explain to you that Bill Wilson was a drunk. And Bill's father-in-law, Dr. Burnham, Lois Burnham's father, Lois's father thought Bill Wilson was a bum who was not worthy of his daughter. Lois had ectopic pregnancies in her life, and when she had these ectopic pregnancies, she was hemorrhaging profusely. Dr. Burnham goes over to check on his daughter. Yutzo is nowhere to be found. 
They can't find him. They don't know where he is. Dr. Burnham leaves a note on the table. Yutz, we're at so-and-so hospital. We looked for you in every bar. We looked for you in every gutter, and we couldn't find you. Get your butt over to the hospital and go see your wife. The next morning, here comes Bill Wilson. He stinks to high heaven. He hasn't shaved. He's drunk. He comes into the hospital. Dr. Burnham is fit to be tied. He can't stand this guy that his daughter, oh, his daughter, oh, Bill's wonderful. Oh, Bill's this. Oh, Bill's that. And he's thinking to himself, this guy is an imbecile. You couldn't do better than this? My God. So when he says, we went to live with my wife's parents, that is the environment that Lois and Bill, Lois is Bill's wife, that Lois and Bill are going back to out of necessity. So he says, I found a job, then lost it as the result of a brawl with a taxi driver. You don't think his father-in-law and mother-in-law had a field day with that one? You finally found a job, you beat up some cab driver in a drunken rage, and now you're eating my food again and can't give me a dime's worth of rent. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. Lois is going to work now in a department store, Lois Department Store in New York City, and she is making about $16, $18 a week in salary, but with commissions she is making about $28, $29 a week. She's standing on her feet in high heels for about 12 to 13 hours a day. All she's asking this guy to do when she leaves the house is, you stink, please wash yourself, put on some clothes, and take the breakfast dishes. You don't even have to wash them. Take them from the table and put them in the sink. That's, your, that's all day I'm giving you those simple jobs. Bathe, dress, shave dishes in the sink all day she comes home he's sitting on the couch drunk drinking stinks dishes are still on the table no shave no clothes nothing done so this is the picture of their domestic life as it's being lived at the time and this emotional buildup is absolutely knocking on the door of that mental twist and in an attempt to put out the fire that that pain is causing him, he is drinking and drinking and he is drinking more to close off the pain of drinking too much and he is drinking more to close off the pain of drinking too much again and again and how many gallons of ice cream and how many pound bags of Doritos did I eat because I had eaten too much ice cream and eaten too many Doritos. How many times did that happen to me? My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hang-around at brokerage places. Now, this, this line is a line that I could come to your hometown and do a retreat on this line and I would never run out of things to say. And this next line is one of the greatest lines in the book. Liquor ceased to be a luxury, it became a necessity. And in my life, food ceased to be a luxury and it became a necessity. Can I relate to Bill Wilson now? You bet I can. There's some chairs up here if you're looking to sit down. There's some chairs right up here. So the bottom line is, is that liquor ceasing to be a luxury and becoming a necessity is something that absolutely parallels my life. 
Okay. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, two bottles a day, often th- and often three, got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. He's got delirium tremens now. He's shaking, and the heart is a muscle. And if the heart becomes affected by delirium tremens, bye-bye, Billy. Okay. A tumbler full of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer would be required. The key word here is required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. What is Bill Wilson doing there? He's going on a diet. You've heard me before. Great, good, okay. He's going on a diet, what we would know as a diet. He is by himself trying to control the amount of liquor he's drinking based on his own unsteady, unreliable willpower. Let's see where he goes from there. Can I relate to him? Yes, I can. Gradually, things got better? No, gradually, things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at a low point in 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender, and that chance vanished. This is a story within the story. Now, this takes place with a group from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And this group from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, knew Bill Wilson, and they wanted Bill to put this together for them. So they approached him, and they said to him, if you're going to get drunk, Wilson, we're not going to deal with you. And Bill was on one of his diets, so he didn't really know that he couldn't control his liquor consumption. And he says to them, you don't have to worry about my drinking. I quit drinking. I don't drink anymore. Why did he say that to him? Because he believed it. He didn't really... He didn't really lie when he said he wanted to quit drinking. Were you lying when you said you weren't going to eat Doritos anymore? Were you lying when you said you weren't going to eat Almond Joy bars anymore? No, you really meant it, didn't you? So you can relate to Bill. You see, you really thought that once you made up your mind not to eat Almond Joy bars anymore, that you wouldn't, didn't you? And Bill believed it. So they go to this hotel room in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, to discuss the deal. And one guy, this is in the days, this is 1932, this is in the days of Prohibition. So this one guy, he's got a jug. And it goes around once, and Bill doesn't take any. Now, not one person knew anything about alcoholism in this whole scenario. And it comes around again. And this is just like your aunt or your favorite neighbor saying, but I made these just for you. The guy says, wait a minute, Wilson. You're the only guy here that hasn't tried my Jersey Lightning. I made this myself. Remember, I told you this is in the days of prohibition when you made bathtub gin or you made, why do they call it that? Because it was gin you made in your bathtub. That's exactly why they called it that. So he takes a drink of Jersey Lightning triggers the allergy, passes through the well-known stages of a spree. He doesn't leave that hotel room for three days. And now he's got to tell Lois, who he loves so much, he's got to tell Lois once again that he effed up. Once again, he got drunk. Once again, the chance vanished. When you love somebody as much as he loved Lois, you want to do good not just for yourself, 
You want to do good to earn the praise in their eyes and to help them. He didn't want his wife working in that darn department store. He wanted to take care of Lois. He wanted to be a good husband, but he was alcoholic and he couldn't do it and he couldn't complete this transaction. Can I relate to Bill Wilson now? You bet I can. You absolutely bet your bippy that I can. <clears throat> okay. I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way, and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder, for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. Renewing my resolve, going back on my diet, I tried again. Some time passed, and confidence began to be replaced by cocksuredness. I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day, I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time, I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. Now, he was half drunk before the liquor went in his mouth. He went to the cafe to make a telephone call. They didn't have a phone at the floral shop. They didn't have a phone at the butcher shop. They didn't have a phone at the funeral parlor or the transmission shop. He went to the cafe to make a call because he knew in the back of his mind that he could constrict a lie to Lois. He can construct that lie to Lois that says, I just went in there to make a telephone call. Remember I told you yesterday I was going to call so-and-so? Well, I went in there to call so-and-so. Then I met up with a friend and I got drunk. What caused Bill to take the first drink? The buildup of emotions, which pushed on the mental twist because he wasn't drinking before. So the pain, the emotional buildup was too much for him. What caused Bill to pound on the bar and say, how did this happen again? The physical allergy. As the physical allergy took over and he was drinking the first one, he drank the second. Now he's got the first one and the second one in him and the cravings become harder and harder. Now he's got the third and the cravings become harder and harder. So he, the more he drinks, the more he wants. The more he wants, the more he drinks, and it's just endless, isn't it? And can I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet I can. I always seem to put myself in positions where I just happen to be going by the pizza place or I just happen to be going past 7-Eleven. And eventually what would happen is I would eat. And eventually what would happen is I would eat too much. And eventually what would happen is my life was dashed on the rocks and I came here. Can I relate to him? Yes. He says, as the whiskey rose to my head, I would manage. I, I, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then. And I did. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dare cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that. So two bottles 
and oblivion. And now he's thinking of killing himself. And so did I. I wanted to die. I didn't want to live in this world because I didn't know how. I didn't know how to live in this world. I didn't know how one keeps from killing themselves with food. And I didn't have the onions to go out and get a gun and blow my brains out. I didn't have the onions to stick a knife in my throat. But I wanted to and I fantasized about it quite a bit. Now, one of the things that has come about in my life is I want to live until I die. I want to live. I want to be part of this world. And I want to participate in my life. But Bill Wilson is cornered by an alcoholic condition that he didn't cause, he can't cure, and he cannot, he cannot control. So he really doesn't know, really, what is going on. But he senses very strongly that he cannot control his intake of liquor. And he sees all around him the devastating side of the devastating, the devastating side effects of what he's doing. On, not the side effects, but how it affects other people. Side effects is not the right thing. How it affects Lois. How it affects his family. His family is worried for him now. He is not doing well. He's not doing well physically. He's not doing well mentally. And people are becoming concerned about him. And let's see where that concern takes us as we travel back in time to his story. Let's pick it up again. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms. I'm going to for mine endured this agony two more years. And I'm going to stop right there and tell you this. The loneliness that I felt in this world and the physical pain that I felt from this illness, I don't know how I survived. I truly do not know how I made it, how I survived. I was emasculated by this illness. I was deformed by this illness. I was absolutely beat down by this illness. And even in recovery, the amount of patience that I had to exercise was beyond human comprehension. Let me just share something with you. I lost 200 pounds in this program, and I was still a 500-pound man. I lost 300 pounds in this program, and I was a 400-pound man. I lost 400 pounds in this program, and I was still a 300-pound man. I had 29 hours of plastic surgery all over my groin, all over my, the apron over here has been removed. I don't know how I survived that. I don't know how I made it across the, the loneliness. I don't know how in the world I made it because there's got to be a God and it's not me and God is very powerful. And when I read that sentence that the mind and the body are marvelous mechanisms, I'm reminded of how difficult this was for me. Pants that constantly fell down. I had to walk with one hand on my pants. Even belts didn't really hold up my pants. I had to constantly fear that they were going to fall. I had to constantly fear still that I was going to break furniture. I had no credibility. I lost 200 pounds in this program, and it was a 500-pound man, and people were still yelling things at me from cars and making fun of me, and people would point at me and laugh. Children would laugh at me in public places, shopping centers. Children would point at me and laugh and stuff like that. I feared people. I feared little kids. I feared adults. People would walk up to me and slap my stomach and say, do you know how fat you are? No, tell me about it. I really had no idea. 
People would yell things like, hey, when's the baby due? And things like that. The cruelness that I endured, the absolute cruelty that I endured were unbelievable. And how in the world I survived is still yet a mystery to me. So can I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet I can. Because he is absolutely in awe of where his mind and body allowed him to be carried to in recovery. And I can absolutely relate that I am the recipient of many, many miracles because the fat person in our society is unacceptable. You can say anything you want to a fat person, you can do anything you want to a fat person, and you can write it off because it's for their own good. I'm doing it for your... And when people walk up to you and say, I hope you won't be offended by this, batten down the hatches because you're probably going to be offended by this. Or my favorite one. You probably know this already. Then please don't tell me. I used to stop people. Please don't. You probably know this already, but there's a new diet out by Dr. Shazam or whatever it is. They all had to tell me about the new diet and the new everything. Okay. For mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. So once again, he's considering suicide. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Lois had access to the Burnham property in the country. When he was drinking in the city, they went to the country. When he was drinking in the country, they went to the city. They tried lots and lots of geographics. Okay. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture were so hellish I feared I would burst through my window sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity. So did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking and I was 40 pounds underweight. Now, what we're going to start to see in this next paragraph is the munificent, beautiful hand of a miraculous, powerful God. We're going to start to see right now the constellations moving together in a way so that we could be here this morning. Why God chose Bill Wilson, I will never know. But he chose this man. He chose Bill because Bill was a very serious messenger of God's work to the world and that's why he chose him i also believe god wrote the book god wrote that book because the people who wrote it the people that that put their hand in it were not worthy of it they didn't know enough they didn't have the background when bill supposedly penned the book and it became a uh, he says at the end of the book he was more an umpire than an author because the Akron people wanted more god and the new york people wanted no god and less god but God is now, and why do I believe that God wrote the book? Because this book has restored more alcoholics, gamblers, drug addicts, sex addicts, compulsive overeaters, you name it, back to society than all other methods of recovery combined. And God is beginning that process right here in the next paragraph. Let's see what it says here. My brother-in-law, this is Dr. Leonard Strong. Now, remember when I told you 
when I told you that I told you Dorothy Wilson would, would play a part in this? Remember I told you that we were going to talk about Dorothy? Dorothy is Bill's little sister. Well, his sister is married to Dr. Leonard Strong. And Leonard Strong liked Bill. And he says here, and my brother-in-law is a physician, and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. What would that be? That is the town's hospital in New York City. So he's about, of all the places that Bill Wilson could go, of all the places that Bill could have chosen to dry out, he chooses or is, he's afforded the opportunity to go to the towns because Leonard Strong had money. And so he goes to the towns. Now, in the town's hospital in New York, in the town's hospital, of all the doctors that he could have been assigned to, he's going to come under the care of Dr. William Duncan Silkworth. Is it odd or is it God? Is it odd or is it God? Now, let's see where we go from there. I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Belladonna was a drug used then to fool the brain into thinking it had alcohol in it to quiet the, down the jitter. Sometimes if you go to an AA meeting, which I lived in Eugene, Oregon for nine years, there is no OA there. You have to go to AA or you die. There's no such thing. So you'd see these guys, they, their hands would be like this. They couldn't even drink a cup of coffee. They couldn't get the cup to their mouth. You thought they had a drinking problem when they were doing booze. Now they've really got a drinking problem. They can't get it inside of them. <clears throat> okay. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained, though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily, the allergy, and mentally, the twist. Now, is Bill Wilson the first person in history to get this information from Silkworth? Probably not. But what we're going to see and what we're going to experience is Bill is going to be the very first person in the history of the world to take that information, and then when we get back from lunch, we're not breaking just yet. We're going to get to the bottom of eight before we break, and I'll take some questions if there's time. Bill Wilson is going to be the very first person that we know of in the history of Earth that is going to get the information of the illness from Silkworth and from a very unlikely, unbelievable source. He's going to get the information of the recovery, and he's going to put it together and bring it to the world. Let's see where we go from here. Now, he's just getting in to his first hospitalization. This is the spring of 1933, and this is the first of his hospitalizations. And it says here, it relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. You know, there's a room full of people here and I would love to get to know each and every one of you. And I bet that if I did, I would find that in your lives, you have accomplished miraculous things. Some of you have raised families, and some of you have been lawyers, and some of you have become professional engineers and do wastewater science, and some of you have done whatever it is you've done, whether you drive a bus or you know, whether you're from Yale or whether you're from jail. It doesn't matter. But some of you have stories that are just unbelievable.
unbelievable. But there's one thing I know you can't do. You can't control the amount you eat once you've started. And you can't keep from eating now that you want to. How do I know that? You wouldn't be sitting here today if you could. You wouldn't be here today. Okay. The will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor. Should also emancipate you from responsibility. How many people in this room are compulsive overeaters? How many of you are ashamed of your compulsive overeating? You're playing God because you have nothing to do with it. It's an illness and you didn't cause it. You can't cure it and you can't control it. When it comes to combating liquor, the will is amazingly weakened and you have nothing to do with it. Unindict yourself. Unindict yourself. Free yourself of that shame. Work these steps. You have nothing to do with it. And I don't care how many people say it's you, it's you, you're controlling what you put in your mouth. No, you're not. Emancipate yourself from these thoughts. All these thoughts are doing is killing you. A hammer to your head is not one of the tools of recovery. (laughs) My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself, now I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. That means for three or four months, things were good. A goose is a sign of prosperity, which means he stayed on his diet and he was able not to drink. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. Right? So now that he knows, now, how many people in this room think that an Almond Joy bar is a better snack choice than celery? If there's anybody that, okay, we have one person, okay, good, two, two, okay, it's not. Okay, just so you know, it's not. Now that you know that, you're cured and you can go home. Okay. Okay. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. But it was not for the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. After a time, I returned to the hospital. This was the finish. The curtain, it seemed to me, my wearing and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens or I would develop a wet brain. Perhaps within a year, she would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. This is now 1934, about one year after the first hospitalization came his second hospitalization. And Silkworth is looking at Bill, laying in the bed. And remember I told you at the beginning of the doctor's opinion that he would fix up some of these drunks and they would never come back. Now that Bill has come back, he is now determined that Bill is a hopeless alcoholic. There's nothing that can be done for him because Silkworth didn't know that there was any recovery out there and he tells Lois the bad news. The unfortunate part of Bill and Lois standing in the doorway is what they didn't realize. Bill was waking up and he hears them and he's telling Lois that he's got to go to the he's got to go to the loony bin, or he's going to be in the uh, Undertaker. <laughs> Bill is hearing them, and he almost welcomes the idea, but he's not happy about this. And he hears them talking, and he himself is wondering what is going to become of me. Wet brain is really a dry brain because liquor dehydrates the cells. 
and when liquor dehydrates the cell, it sucks that moisture right out of there, there's two things that do not recover on their own, the brain and the liver. And when these guys get a wet brain, literally they are vegetables in every sense of the word. They'll go to the home, and they'll get them up, and they'll change their diaper, and they'll feed them, and they'll change their diaper, and feed them, and feed them, and change their diaper. They don't know anybody. They don't know anything. You go to see them, and they don't know a thing. And this is a very, very serious condition. Very serious. Okay. They did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining the endless procession of sots who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. Listen to what he's writing here. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. No better description of my life was ever written than that. Food was my master, and I was waiting to die. There's a seat right here, Virgil. I was waiting to die, and I wanted to die. That was a bus I didn't want to miss. When the death bus came, I wanted to be the first one on it because I saw no way out. I saw that there was no way out. Now, you don't have to wait for page 83 to get promises in this program, let me tell you, I've been around the block here a few times, and you can get the, some of the most beautiful, some of the most poetic, and some of the most fantastic promises in this book, in this next paragraph. We're going to do two more paragraphs, and then we'll be done for the morning, and then what we'll do when we come back is we will begin the step two part, we'll begin the recovery part. Trembling, I... I'm on page 8. I'm on page 8 in the middle of the page. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital, a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. And on Armistice Day, November 11, 1934, I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. Now, there's three dimensions. There's the dimension of height, width, and depth. And then there is a dimension of the spirit. And the dimension of the spirit is what we're talking about. Near the end of that bleak November, I'm sorry, I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house. Yeah. Okay, if you could turn that off, that'd be great. Okay. All right. Okay, should I do that again? Trembling, I stepped from the the hospital, a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. And on Armistice Day, which is November 11th, which we call Veterans Day now, 
I was Armistice Day because that was the Armistice of World War I. 1934, I was off again. <clears throat> Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted in what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. When you grab God's hand and you work these steps, life will get better. Doesn't mean I get what I want. I don't have a pony. I don't have a Maserati. I don't have a movie star girlfriend. No, no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. And as a human being, I'm going to have situations which I wish were different. That's part of being human. But as I recover, my life gets richer and deeper and more wonderful as it passes because I understand that the reason I don't have a pony and the reason I don't have a, 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 a movie star girlfriend is because I'm not supposed to have one yet. And if I'm supposed to have one, God will provide those things for me. As long as I put others first and work my program, my life will continue to go well. If I put me first and see how much I can get out of life, my life will get progressively worse. How do I know that? Because my life has illustrated that for me in every way it can illustrate it. Okay. Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. My wife was at work. I wondered whether I dare hide a full bottle of gin near the head of our bed. I would need it before daylight. Let's stop for the morning, and we're going to pick this up in the afternoon after we take some questions. But what we're going to talk about this afternoon is we are going to talk about something very, very special that's going to happen and it's going to happen in Bill's kitchen, and he's going to get a call from a friend of his, and his friend has been an alcoholic his entire life. His friend is a friend that Bill did a lot of drinking with. They did a lot of drinking together, and there's going to be some situations which Bill right now has very little knowledge of, if any. Now, he knows that some things have happened, but he, there's going to be a lot of things here that are going to be going on that are going to come together in a very, very miraculous way. Okay? Let's take some questions. And if there's food... Yes? Well, there's ways to do it. There's ways to do it with my commentary, with other commentaries. Um, they have a Los Angeles website called Los Angeles Overeaters Anonymous. Click on speakers and podcasts. You can do that. Uh, there's also other OA sources out there where this is on there. But yeah. Okay. How did you come back from relapse? I started working the steps. How I came back from relapse is the pain of eating had to outweigh the fear of letting the food go. Let me say that again. In order for recovery to take place... The pain of eating must outweigh the fear of letting the food go. I must be cornered by this illness. I must absolutely be out of ideas. I had a sponsor who was a great big guy. He was a good guy. I hated him, though. I used to, I used to fantasize about killing him. No. <laughs> but, 
And he'd say to me, are you out of ideas yet, kid? Because I was 24 when I came in. He says, are you out of ideas yet, kid? He says, you got any more ideas? Because I ain't going to waste my effing time with you if you got more ideas. And he'd say the real golf words. He'd say, I ain't going to waste my effing time with you. You out of ideas? (laughs) He'd say that. So when I was out of ideas, that's when recovery can take place. As long as I have ideas on how I'm going to do this my way, and as long as I have ideas and I'm going to control my food, there's no way God's going to get in there. There's no way recovery's going to get in there. Does the medical community recognize the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind? I don't know what the medical uh, community recognizes, but in Yale University, there was an alcoholic studies program for a long time, and they would prove Dr. Silkworth's theory was 100% true. They would measure the brain waves of an alcoholic drinking, an eater eating, a gambler gambling, and all these other various addictions, drugs, and they showed that the brain waves of people doing these things were identical to each other, but different from normal people doing them. The same as others and different from the normal person. And in 1949, Dr. Harry Tebow, a noted psychiatrist who was, doctor, who was the doctor of Bill Wilson, published a paper in 1949 in which he stated that he absolutely believed that alcoholism was an illness and it was accepted at that time by the American Psychiatric Association and the American Medical Association and that's why you see Dr. Silkworth's name in the book as I told you before when this letter was written or this paper was written by Tebow Silkworth said to Bill now that they recognize it he says you can put my name in there now and then uh, Silkworth died in 1951 but for the last two years of his life it, it had his name in the big book. His story, or Silkworth's opinion, used to be on page one, and now it's in the Roman numeral section. Please talk about daily 10 steps, your experiences with them. I'm going to talk about that when I get to step 10 tomorrow morning, okay? I will cover step 10. It is the most underutilized along with two. Two and 10 are the most underutilized, and three and four are the most misunderstood. But I promise you I will cover step 10 in the morning tomorrow. I promise How have your relationships changed or you have changed? We don't have enough time to really... (laughs) I'm, I'm going to do the best I can while I'm here in San Diego to answer that question. And I think I've told you a lot about me uh, and I try to keep me to a minimum and try to accent Bill and, 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 you know, the whole thing. You are amazing, so real. Thank you. How many years of abstinence do you have? Sixteen and a half. Sixteen and a half years of abstinence as, as we speak right now. Thank you. Thank you. Are there more? Are there more in there? Okay. I'm sorry I couldn't do the one with my story or whatever. Yes? I have a question related to the, um, the um, people who are, you know, who relapse. I have a sponsor right now. Is what? Is continuing I don't think that that's really the question. Why in the world would you have a sponsor that continues to relapse? Oh, she's my sponsee. Oh, sponsee. Read chapter 7. If she continues to relapse, leave her alone. She's not ready yet. You do this when you're ready, not a minute before. I'll take, we're going to quit at 11.30 only because I'm a big fan of lunch. And I, I, know, I know that some of you are too. So I'm a big fan of lunch. And we'll meet back here at what time? One, what? 
115, does anybody have the schedule on them? 115, I usually leave that to other people. I don't normally even look at that. They'll run those schedules by me and I'll say, look, I'll do the best I can, but you know me, I'm the round peg and square hole thing and we'll be done when we're done, but I, I've never let anybody miss a meal yet. Okay, one more and then we'll be done. One more, yes, Arthur. The fear of letting the food go. You must, the, the pain of eating must, be out, must outweigh the fear of letting the food go in order for recovery to take place. Let me just, one more if it's quick. Yes. Quick one, Susan. Uh, at a big book study. At a big book study. It's called the Big Book of AA. It'll take you right through, word by word by word. Do what it says and avoid doing what it says to avoid. The instructions are right here. You shouldn't need very much of a, of a concordance. You shouldn't need very much. If you, if you, where do you live? Sacramento. Sacramento. I don't know who's up there, but if you live in L.A., there's Roy L., and there's a lot of really good people, and OA is coming back. Here you have Dave B., and you have a lot of people here uh, who I don't even know about because I'm not from here, but I know if you, Dave B. or some of these other guys are very good into the big book. And if you need online help, it's there too. There's other people online. Yes, Virgil. Keep coming back. Keep coming back. Okay, all right. All right, let's go to lunch. We'll see you back here at 115.